Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Jo Sharp. In this episode, we're talking about the G20. The G20 is an annual gathering of the world's largest economies, and it's a major global forum for discussing a wide range of economic issues. In recent years, that has included social protection, which of course has been used by many countries to stabilise economies in the face of successive crises. Brazil takes over the G20 presidency from India on the 1st of December this year, and at this moment of handover, I'm speaking with researchers from those two countries about how G20 agendas are shaped, how social protection has featured, and their shared goal of expanding the voice of the Global South in this premier international forum. For our episode today, I'm delighted to welcome Janti Tripathi, who is an Associate Fellow with the Observer Research Foundation and Coordinator for the Think20 India Secretariat for the 2023 G20, which was hosted by India. Think20, or T20 as it's known, is an official engagement group of the G20. It's convened each year. It serves as an idea bank or ideas bank for the G20 by bringing together different think tanks and high-level experts to discuss policy-relevant issues for the G20 itself. Welcome, Janvi. Thank you. Happy to be here. I also have Fabio Vera Suarez, who is Director of International Studies at the Institute of Applied Economic Research, IPEA, a government of Brazil think tank. IPEA is one of the members of the organising committee of the T20 during Brazil's presidency, which is due to start December 1st this year. Welcome back to the podcast, Fabio. Thank you, Joel. Happy to be here. So, Janvi, just to get us started, this is a podcast that's about social protection. For those of us who are less familiar with the G20, when and why was the G20 established? And what is its role within international architecture? Well, thank you for the question, Joe. It's something we've been trying to answer for a while ourselves as researchers, because the G20 was never actually formally established. It was a coming together of a group of countries in a moment of crisis, dating back to 1999, when we had the Asian, the Mexican, and the Russian financial crisis cascading together and impacting the larger global economy. And it's in 2008 where we see the escalation of the finance level of coordination uh, to a summit level coordination, creating the G20 as we know today where you have yearly summit-level meetings, where you have a Sherpa track and a finance track working separately. You have a cascading of issues. Uh, we go beyond simple global financial architecture to include a spectrum of issues which keep growing as our world changes. From uh, environment to digital economy, every layer of policy which may impact people's lives has somehow made its way into the G20's lexicon of policy making. G20 stands for Group of 20, so that's 20 countries and large economies. Can you give us a sense of, of that membership and how it's changed over time? Certainly. The G20 members would be the right word, not countries, because the European Union is also a part of the G20. And in fact, it's the G21 now with the happy news of the African Union joining uh, the G21. And why the membership of the G20 is important is it's also rooted in its history because you see about 75% of the world's GDP 
reflected in the membership of the G20 as we knew it till 2022. So uh, it is a matter of members with the biggest stake in the world economy and the biggest stake in globalization's functioning and ensuring that it works in the interest of the many. Because if one of these economies collapses, it has a domino effect on all of the other memberships. So if you look at the geographical spread of the membership, you see from Brazil to Mexico to India, of course, to Indonesia, you see the G7 in its entirety reflected in the G20. I would argue that the G20 broadens the horizons of consensus building, which is one of the biggest roles of the G20 to create consensus on global issues amongst those with the biggest stake as well as the most power to mobilize action on serious global concerns. Fabio, as Janvi was just outlining, the G20 initially came together during the context of, of crisis, in this case, financial crisis. And of course, in recent years, we have seen global economies look to social protection to respond to a range of crises. So I wanted to ask you, how has social protection featured on the G20 agenda since its creation and in those early days? I, I would say that social protection actually come again prominence in the G20 debate on the second phase of the existence of this group. Basically because when it was first created, it was actually a forum for ministers of finance and directors of the central banks in, in sort of trying to enhance the financial and macroeconomic coordination of the policies of the most important economies in the world. Uh, and that was just after the Russia crisis and the Asian crisis in the late 1990s. It actually gains a new dimension and a more prominent dimension after what was called at the time the triple F crisis. That was the finance crisis, the food crisis, and the fuel crisis. And I think that social protection actually gained prominence there because of the two final Fs. It was basically because of the food crisis. Those prices of food had increased. Poverty also increased. And also because of the fuel crisis, because it became fiscally unsustainable for many countries to sustain subsidies for fuel. And there were many people saying that, look, instead of paying subsidies for the fuel, you could actually increase social protection coverage, increase people's income so that they could afford this higher price, so they could cushion this higher price. So it came in a very instrumental way. And it's important to, to remember that at the time, we're in the final push for the MDGs, the Millennial Development Goals, that were later replaced by the Sustainable Development Goals. So during that time, when the push for a bigger G20 now, with the head of government and the head of the states coming together and committing to do things, committing to push in a developmental agenda, in an agenda that would reduce the impact of the crisis. It is in this context that the growth of the resilience that had social protection as a key component came about. To continue with you, Fabio, then, as I mentioned earlier, of course, we have very recently lived through or perhaps are living through a phase of unprecedented crisis beginning with the COVID pandemic in 2020, and we've talked about food. You know, here we are again with food prices increasing, particularly last year, partly as a knock-on effect from the war in Ukraine. 
So to kind of extend this theme, I'd be interested to hear from you how social protection has featured in recent G20 agendas, especially in the context of those crises. So if social protection was quite prominent in the agenda back in the early 2010, I would say that it makes a comeback, the discussion to agenda with the COVID-19 crisis. As we could see, many, many countries, but particularly the middle-income countries and the high-middle-income countries have used social protection, have expanded social protection, both horizontally increasing coverage, but also uh, vertically increasing the amount that was paid uh, to households and to families as a means uh, to reduce the impact of the containment measures that were taken in order to avoid the dissemination of the virus before we had the vaccines. So that was quite important. As I would say that between 2010, when it first came strongly to the G20 agenda, and 2020, when it needed to be quickly expanded, many developments took place. And it was precisely these developments that allowed that quick response. I wouldn't say that for the high-income countries, but certainly for the middle-income countries and some low-income countries, of course, with varied set of capacities and different strength in their response, was basically made possible because of these developments that took place in that decade. And particularly, that's something that India, for example, and Brazil uh, also are quite strong, was basically with the evolution of digitalization to identify individuals, to connect them with households, and also to do electronic payments and digital payments. All these innovations came with financial inclusion that allowed many, many countries to quickly respond to the crisis. And I think that now, after what we observed, it had a positive impact in the sense that most of the forecasted fall in GDP and the forecasted increase in poverty did not take place. I'm not saying that poverty didn't increase, it did, but poverty increased by less and GDP fell to less than what was projected. Coming back to you now, Janthi, you are the coordinator of the Think20 India Secretariat. And as I mentioned before, the Think20 is a, a formal engagement group that feeds into the G20 each year. What is the role of these think tanks in the lead up to the G20 and how do they feed into the process? The Think20 itself was established in 2012. So this is the 11th year of the Think20. In good Indian spirit, we made it a very large and populist sort of project where we had people engagement, we had engagement from more think tanks than any other Think20 has had in the past. We had 131 co-chairs from all the G20 members plus invited countries from the Indian presidency. So we had a very dynamic conversation going on across all seven task forces that we created because our idea, our goal in line with uh, the Indian government's goal was to have more voices, more voices from the global south and keep on track the agenda for sustainable development and that for social protection. That sounds like an enormous effort and a huge coordination challenge. So how does all of the thinking and the policy papers and that discussion that's going on between the various task forces that make up T20, how does all of that feed into what eventually becomes the main agenda or the series of agendas? 
So that is a question that is unique for each presidency because how we deal with track one is uh, very different in each of our countries. The advantage uh, Think 20 India had was that uh, we had a Sherpa who was very committed to each engagement group. So was listening to each engagement group and was personally present at as many of our forums as he could be because he was interested in listening to the conversations that were taking place. And as far as prioritization is concerned, this is something, in fact, Fabio can speak to more on as one of the coaches of Task Force 6. But a lot of it uh, involved negotiating with members of your own task force and uh, seeing what are the priorities of, of the current environment that we're living in, the context that we're living in, and what is likely to be on the agenda for track one because it would be pointless if it were not aligning with the needs of the polity and policy makers. Then coming to you, Fabio, as co-chair of Task Force 6, which is the Task Force on Sustainable Development, what was your perspective on this effort to kind of gather all of this knowledge together and translating that into the agenda for the track one summit at the end of the day? First of all, it was lots of work. Basically, we're putting together researchers, uh, academics, people that actually don't know each other. So they come together to discuss issues from different perspectives and from different country experience. And then you have like academics also become diplomats because then you have to negotiate and discuss what the priorities should be. But on this, we are actually guided by the, the priorities set by the country for its presidency. So India has set its own priorities and among them, uh, we had, of course, the issue of accelerating SDGs because the, the report on SDGs, on the progress of this, which just came out this year, and we are really lagging behind uh, because of the cascading crisis that we're facing. So we need to accelerate it. Actually, that was the title of the task force. That was accelerating SDGs. And then we think that we had the different work streams, as the president called it. And among them, we had the issues like food security again and climate smart agriculture. And also we had uh, women empowerment that came quite strongly on to say that one of the results of this process is actually now we have a women empowerment working group within the official shepherd that's going to start now in, the, in Brazil's presidency. I could also mention that even in the disaster risk reduction working group, another working group of the shepherd prep, social protection also came quite prominent in a way to foster adaptation to climate change, for example, but also to respond to shocks, climate shocks, in a way that people can be more resilient and kick, kick back uh, much sooner. That's basically what we have been discussed in the task force six. And I was quite happy with the final outcome. We saw that actually in the recommendations, in the statements, as we call it, in the statements of the task force, and it made all the way to the community, that's basically the summary documents of what has been developed in all the task force that's delivered by the secretariat of the pitch waiting, the chair. And then the chair communicates that to the leaders. Then I should say that the socialprotection.org actually got to be mentioned in the final communique. And just remember that the socialprotection.org is actually one outcome of the recommendations that dates back to 2010-2011 and the work of the development working group within the digital. That's right. Frequent listeners may not know, as Fabio has just said, that socialprotection.org was 
an outcome from the sort of early 2010s, recognising the need for more knowledge sharing between member states and, of course, low and middle income countries on social protection. So we are a product of the G20 ourselves. Janvi, continuing to talk about India's presidency this year and the year that's about to conclude, if we look at the G20 leaders' joint declaration, there are two social protection-related issues that are highlighted in particular. One is social protection financing, which is a big topic also in the context of the need to accelerate SDGs. But also, interestingly, social protection for gig or platform workers, which is perhaps more of a niche topic in this field. Can you outline what was discussed or agreed with reference to those topics? In terms of social protection in New Delhi leaders' declaration, it's not just limited to the two topics you outlined. In fact, there's a large chunk of the leaders' declaration which also discusses women empowerment and women-led development in the context of social protection. So uh, I would really like to highlight that because it was a very high priority area for the G20 women-led development. But coming to the specific two issues you mentioned of sustainable financing and uh, social protection for gig workers, why that is interesting is because it uh, tells you a little bit about where India is going in terms of its growth story and also where the developing countries that have been consecutively given the G20 presidency from Indonesia to India to Brazil and finally South Africa in the coming years. There's a trajectory of growth of our economies where people are at the center. We all have both the benefit and challenge of a demographic dividend. And we've all had the experience of and knowing that it doesn't take too long for a demographic dividend to become a demographic burden if they don't have the right kind of work environment, if you don't have the right kind of skills, if you don't have the right kind of response to how the economy is changing. So if we look at the content of the social protection for gig workers as well as for sustainable financing, of social protection, it's more about ensuring that investment is made into people then there's investment made into giving them the right kind of skills to meet new opportunities, even as old opportunities become redundant. All of our economies are going through a shift where digitization and automation are replacing, so to speak, classic labor. So what is required then is a conscious effort on the part of governments to make sure that there are citizens, their polity, people who make up your economy are not forgotten in this rush for digitization and just the rush to be more tech savvy. And India is not denying the need or the G20 is not the den denying the need for digitization, but it needs to be in tandem with ensuring that people are not lost in the conversation for greater growth digital means. I did notice in doing some background reading for this episode that social protection for gig or platform workers is something that is coming up in a political context as a priority for the Indian Prime Minister. I would say that political priorities of any government which has the G20 presidency are likely to make their way into their own G20 agenda. So if India has a large population of gig workers, it's only natural that the Indian government would like to have protection in place for gig workers 
if we have a labor code in place for blue collar workers, then it's just a natural progression to also have codes to protect the rights of gay workers and for women workers, women in the workplace. So if you look at the New Delhi Declaration, there's also a mention of the care economy and the need to have social protection for women in the workforce. But I think we must also keep in mind that the G20 is a consensus-based body. So anything that we are saying as a domestic priority would not have made it into the G20 lexicon of issues if it was not also a priority for the other 19, now other 20 members. And if, for instance, in India, we have other domestic issues that don't necessarily implicate G20, and they've not made their way into the G20 lexicon. But something we prioritize, for instance, with Lifestyles for Environment, which is, in fact, goal 12 of the SDGs, if anybody in the global West wants to look, at the SDG goals, again, sustainable consumption and production exists as part of the SDGs. We've just given it whole life, so to speak, lifestyles for environment. So it's very much a going back to the roots because of what Fabio mentioned. There's so much we've not done and there's been so much backtracking on the SDGs. And there's so much to distract us in the global context. It's just so much constantly going on. How do we keep the focus on development, on growth, on the needs of the larger populations of the world? So that was very much at the center of India's G20, putting in the voices of the global south, keeping on track development and making sure that there's less noise and more work. Fabio, Brazil, as we've discussed, will assume the presidency of the G20 in December this year. What are the key themes and priorities for, for next year? Well, uh, President Lula has announced the Brazil three priorities during the G20 summit in Delhi. Basically, the first priority is actually fighting against poverty and hunger, which is, as you say, it's, it's another domestic discussion because he also ran in his, his two terms uh, along this platform. Um, the second one is energy transition and sustainable development in its three dimensions, the environmental, but also the social and the economic dimension. And the third one is the reform of the multilateral governance and the multilateral institutions. And all these under the chapeau of inequality. So that's the light or the focus that the Brazil's presidency to the G20 wants to give, is how inequality cuts across poverty and hunger, but also the issue of energy transition, because we want to have just an energy transition. We need to have workers that are able to find jobs with this new so-called green economy, and also the issue of inequality. So giving the global South more power in the global distribution of voice and votes within them that reflects the current world and not the world in the post-Second World War. I think that's something that's important to say is that even though the G20 presidency has this freedom to set up what are the priority issues that's going to be discussed, it also has to convey the gas the other countries, and it has a function that's to find consensus. So there are some uncomfortable issues that came into the priorities of Brazil to shed the light on issues that are more relevant for the global south. Sometimes, for example, the issue of climate justice and that the northern countries have to contribute more 
to the transitions that we need to do are things that are not consensual. So actually, we try to push the boundaries, but I mean, the rotating president needs to find a consensus so that in the end we have a joint leaders' declaration. Brazil has some of the earliest and best known big national social protection programs like Bolsa Familia, also large food security investments. When assuming the presidency, how will you perhaps, working through the think tank track, be drawing on that kind of past knowledge and, of course, bringing in knowledge from other countries in order to feed into that agenda? Actually, you can see that both the G20, like official track, and also on the big point. President Lula, again, he announced this special task force to set up an alliance against uh, poverty and hunger. That's very clear. It's going to be one of the priorities that's going to bring, of course, Brazil's experience on both uh, poverty reduction, including social protection instruments, such as Bolsa Familia, uh, but also the diverse menu of uh, different programs to address food security and, and, and eradicate hunger. So in the case of Brazil, what we are discussing with the national think tanks, and we are going to discuss this week with the international think tank, is to have one task force dedicated to the issue of inequality, poverty, and hunger. And then we are to also to discuss um, the sustainable uh, development goals and how to accelerate it, but always with a view to reducing inequality, fighting uh, poverty, and fighting hunger, actually eradicating them. That we do need to have uh, bilateral and trilateral cooperation, South-South cooperation, which is related to SDG 17, partnerships and cooperation. Sometimes we don't talk about this so important SDG that also discuss how we are going to finance this whole process. The funding to accelerating SDG, the funding to increase social protection coverage in all the programs that fight hunger and poverty are going to be crucial. And I think that the brains of the different banks around the world that have been studying this issue is going to be quite important. Janfi, as I understand it, your field or background is actually in international trade policy. So a very different field to social protection um, that we've been discussing today, for which thank you for your sort of patience and forbearance as we've focused it on one niche topic, recognising, of course, that the agenda for the G20 is, is much, much, much broader but I'd be interested to hear from you, especially with your trade background, why is it important that leaders at the G20 do address issues like social protection, human development, resilience, alongside these issues like macroeconomics and trade policy? The answer is very simple, Joe. The actors in an economy, the actors in trade are humans. The health of an economy is directly dependent on the health of the actors in the economy. Whether you look at the WTO, whether you look at the IMF, any rules they are making are going to be impacting the lives of individuals, individuals governments care about, not only because they represent them at a global level, but also because they have been voted in, in all democracies, in the interest of the people, for the people, and by the people. So it would make no sense for the G20 to not discuss issues about the people. And it's something that India has been saying for a while, that this was a people's G20. It's something we've been reiterating constantly. The Think 20 alone took Think 20 to 15 states in India. 
and six geographies abroad for this precise reason, because more voices are important. And if you're not responding to the problems that people are facing every day, there's really very little point to policy making. Because who are you making these policies for, if not for all of these actors in the economy? Fabio, finally, let me turn to you. The G20 is, you know, one of many different international groupings, one of many international fora that's held each year, albeit one of the more important ones. How relevant and influential is the G20 over things like social protection policies in member states? Do you see the G20 setting social protection agendas and driving change, or is it more about reflecting current issues? It's not easy to, to answer. I see that social protection has come to prominence as a response to, to the crisis. And, and actually, it's interesting to see that it came in a way that it was seen as a import, an important component to allow growth with resilience. The sense that we know that it's it's hard to keep high rates of growth for a long time without having crisis kicking. We do need to have automatic stabilizers that are good for the economy, like I said, in the case of the COVID-19, but also to protect people's livelihoods and to ensure that people have their rights, basic human rights and social protection, which is one of them. In, in that sense, I see that in the future of the G20, perhaps social protection will come in and out as needs goes, because of course, they are looking at the issues that are learning at that time and that need, need to be addressed. What I see for the international community working around social protection is that it's important to seize the moment. And I think that they have done in a very good way. So if we look at the socialprotection.org itself as one of the recommendations of the which way so we can see that's a very uh, special outcome. It has some challenges, why we know, but it has contributed a lot for the knowledge sharing among countries. Particularly to middle-income countries to low-income policy was actually the mandate that the platform had. We also look at the Social Protection Agency Cooperation Board, what it has done for the past three years. It's actually an achievement. The agencies that work in the area, they have cooperated more. They have built out at least some common understanding or basic concepts and actions that need to be implemented at the country level. So there is no point in just having this common definition if at the ground, as Javi was saying, people are not feeling the difference. I think that some progress has been made there. But I also think that we need to do a little bit more. And that's why I have high expectations around this alliance that's going to be proposed by Brazil's G20 presidents. And I, I think it's important to highlight that we have been reducing poverty again. So that's why we are now slight, slightly below the 2019 levels. But that's not true for the low-income countries. Well, it should be highlighted whenever, if you have a G20 presidency that wants to highlight inequalities, we have inequality in terms of the recovery. Therefore, Brazil's presidency needs to commit to support the needs and demands and the voice of the low-income countries. They are not part of the G20, but they need to be represented there by the countries in the global south. And I think that's what Indonesia, India, Brazil, and, ne and the next presidency with South Africa needs to do. needs to build on the solidarity of the countries in the global south so that we can face the global challenges with our own views. 
Janvi and Fabio, thank you so much for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Joining us for Quick Wins today is Carla Mejia, who is Regional Nutrition Advisor for WFP in Latin America and the Caribbean. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. In the interview we just heard, we talked a bit about how food security and nutrition would likely feature on the agenda for Brazil's presidency of the G20 in the coming year. It's a nice introduction to the first piece you've brought in for us to talk about today. Mm-hmm. WFP, as I understand it, recently hosted a side event at the 51st Committee for Food Security titled Nourishing Progress, Reflecting on a Decade of Social Protection Innovations and Thinking for Zero Hunger. So I'm intrigued. What are some of the ways that the thinking on this topic, which is how can social protection contribute to better nutrition and food security, how has that evolved over the past 10 years? Thank you so much for asking this question. And one of the things that if I caught my attention that was highlighted in the discussion was that social protection interventions, in fact, have been proven to be effective in reducing food insecurity over the years, but not so much in regards to nutrition security. In other words, the contribution to basic income security provided through social protection network was proven to be necessary, but yet insufficient to impact nutrition status. And so social protection systems then require linkages, linkages with other systems, most importantly food systems, and also across sectors with the health sector, education sector, and as well with policies um, in order to achieve this inclusion outcome. One of the things that to me was emphasized significantly was how the cost of a nutritious diet tends to be higher than the spending allocated for such diets. in low-income and low-medium-income countries, then it's not surprising you know, that the nutrition-sensitive social protection systems have significant but modest impact uh, on stunting, for example, in part due to this underestimation of the cost of healthy diet. And according to the speakers, this also reflects the fact that many social protection programs do not include design features that recognize these intersecting inequalities at the root of vulnerability, or that by design, they focus on this nutritional impact, but yet they do not focus on how to do it and how to effectively implement or monitor and evaluate. And this is especially true for groups that deserve special attention, for example, uh, children below the age of two and their mothers, or adolescent girls. And this is also especially true in my region, where the double burden of malnutrition affects countries in in such a way that results in losses of GDP of up to 16% annually. Thank you. As you say, this is a really important issue and it is really interesting to think about how we move from food security and zero hunger into that kind of realm of interventions that are more able to address the complex challenge of nutrition. 
And so with that in mind, I know that you've also brought in a new set of resources mm-hmm. on social protection, Pathways mm-hmm. to Nutrition. Why should listeners check those out? I think it's important that to know what was the goal of this this whole evidence piece that uh, took years to, to get completed uh, by WFP colleagues in combination with IBS and IFPRI. And the goal of the project was to review all the evidence in the region no? and propose an analytical and operational framework that in fact connects social protection to better nutrition outcomes. The, the study seeks to link not only these positive impacts of social protection interventions throughout the various countries in the region that were analyzed on diet and nutritional outcomes by one building robust evidence that focused not only on what works, but also on what kind of doesn't, how and and why, so that we can contribute to better well-being no, in the region. Secondly, within this context, we unpack all these impact pathways and jointly explore the design and implementation features of all these programs to see, uh, again, what kind of barriers and enablers either sooner or facilitate positive nutritional outcomes in the short, medium, and long run. What I think was a key outcome of the study, as I said, was these two frameworks. One that was designed mostly for policymakers and another one designed for program managers to help them understand the interaction between sectorial policies within the overall intervention space of social protection, uh, highlighting the importance of intersectorial work and system design consideration. Viewing social protection systems in a way acting in tandem with food, health, and other systems, and detailing the linkages uh, of these social assistance interventions through these impact pathways and outcomes. I think people will be really interested in understanding how they really should design these programs. One of their objectives is to reach better nutrition outcomes for their countries and their society. Fantastic. And as you say, it does take effort and careful design to have significant impacts on nutrition. If listeners are interested in this topic, we featured a couple of episodes recently on social protection and nutrition, including one on the nutrition gap, which you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which really opened my eyes at the time to that high cost of nutritious food, especially if you're accounting for the whole household's needs and quite challenging given the relatively low value, as you say, of many cash transfers and the importance of linking those programs out to different kinds of food systems and food interventions. So I encourage people to check that one out as well. Thank you, Carla, for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you, Jo. And thank you for listening to the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts or Spotify and we are so grateful when you leave a review. Back next month. See you then.